Good morning to you. I'm delighted to be here and love being around folks who love God's Word and love to be worshiping God as directed by the Word of God. And so this is a marvelous occasion for us. I'm glad that my wife Tish was able to make the journey. And I don't know how long we'll be in Cookville if the weather decides, I guess the weather will decide in some measure how long we'll be here. But uh, we're grateful for the opportunity to be in your midst. And in this world in which we live, there are more and more people who want to determine what amount of the Word of God they will hear and accept. And there are fewer and fewer people who want to hear all that it says, and the authority that is rendered by it in, in the entirety of God's Word. I certainly know that we need people who want to hear everything that God said, the positive, the negative, and all of that. And I'm thankful for your desire to do that. I don't know how many times I've sung that phrase. You've sung it too, many, many times. Trust and obey For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. I preached many sermons from Hebrews chapter 11 over the years entitled, The Faith That Saves is the Faith That Obeys. And I will confess to you that just speaking for myself, I had preached very few sermons on the first part of that equation. The faith that saves is the faith that trusts. But that's just as important. It's a prerequisite to obedience. And in the next hour, we're going to be discussing the concept of obedience and how important it is from Hebrews 11. But there is a component in Hebrews 11 that I went far too long, personally speaking, without giving proper emphasis to. And so it's a privilege today in this worship hour to investigate the trust component of this equation. Because the word faith as described or defined by Thayer and other lexicographers has to do with a trust that is conjoined with obedience. The concept is I believe what God said. I take him at his word and even if he says he's going to do something that I've never seen done or that no human being has ever seen done, If God said he's going to do it, I trust him. I take him at his word. And there is a background for that. As you go to Hebrews 11 with me and notice the first part of this chapter, the Bible tells us that faith is something. What is it? It is the substance or literally the assurance of things that are hoped for. And then this is the part right here that starts the whole chapter and really, as we're going to show, is threaded through the whole chapter, but I don't believe uh, has been given perhaps as much emphasis as it could have been or should have been, at least not by this preacher. So I'm working on catching up on that area. Notice the last phrase of verse 1. What is faith? It's the evidence. Notice, not a blind leap in the dark. It's the evidence of things not seen. And then he gives an illustration. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand. Would you stop there and notice something? Through faith 
we understand. Some people act like faith and knowledge are mutually exclusive and that never the twain can meet. Truth be told, true faith, saving faith, is connected to knowledge. It's not believing in something you have no evidence for. One little boy was asking in Bible class, what is faith? He said it's believing in something you don't have any evidence for. That's not true. Faith is the evidence of things not seen, and through faith we understand, we can comprehend and know, know what? Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Now, this is my first time in this building, and yet you would not have to twist my arm very long at all to convince me that on a, an occasion in the past, someone built this building. That's as uh, elementary as elementary can be. Hebrews 3, 4 puts it this way, for every house is builded by some man. Well, who would deny that? I went to the St. Louis Science Center many years ago with an elder in the Lord's Church. We were going to see a ball game that night, but we wanted to do something during the day, and so we went to the St. Louis Science Center. In that science center, they had all kinds of exhibits that were fascinating, but I was uh, feeling a consternation more and more as I saw more and more emphasis given to the idea that evolutionary happenstance was the explanation for all these things we were seeing. I couldn't help but notice we came around a certain section and there was a big blank wall with only video monitors attached to that wall, probably eight or nine video monitor, monitors if you're going from left to right. And there was nothing written above this display. There was nothing written underneath it. It was pretty self-explanatory. If you watch the far left monitor and kept watching to the far right monitor, what you would see is the very building of the St. Louis Science Center. The far left monitor showed them clearing the land, knocking down the trees, laying the foundation. Then you go to the next monitor and it's this phase of the building project until you finally get to the end monitor, ribbon cutting ceremony, celebration, grand opening. I haven't left graffiti any place in my life, but I wanted to that day. I wanted to take spray paint or something and someone that could do calligraphy that would look nice, it wouldn't look good if I did it, but I wanted to leave this message. For every house is builded by some man, as these monitors clearly show, but he that built all things is God. God did it. God made the world and all things in it. Which one of us here present? When God spoke this world into existence, which one of us? I wasn't there to see it. I wasn't there to hear his commands. And yet I know with confidence and evidence that buildings don't build themselves and universes don't either. And there is no way that this world came into existence without a designer behind it. There's too much design present for it to have happened in that way. And so I can believe in something I've never seen done because of the logic of knowing that things that are done sometimes cannot be done without someone doing them. And that is exactly the case when it comes to the existence 
of this world. God made this world and all things in it. Even though I wasn't there to see it, I have absolute conviction that it happened because I wasn't here to see this PowerPoint projector mounted and pointed in this direction. I wasn't present when that happened. Some of you may have been. I was not. But you wouldn't have to convince me that uh, someone put it there on purpose and fastened it to the ceiling on purpose because I know that PowerPoint projectors don't just decide one day to jump up in the air and fasten themselves to places and just so happen to be pointed in the right direction. That doesn't happen by accident and happenstance. It's done on purpose. And God made your eyes, which are far more impressive than this PowerPoint's ability to cast an image, God made your eyes to be able to see things. Our phones are constantly telling us, hey, these, the camera on this phone is even better than the one you got last time. And if you have the one from last time, you're way, way behind the times. You need this one. And they always try to convince us. And yet those phones, as marvelous as they are, as technologically advanced as they are becoming, no atheist in the world would believe the phone just happened by accidental chance and happenstance. But the men who built the phone did? There, there's no sense in that. And so trust. I trust there is a God in heaven, Daniel 2.28. And I trust that he made this world. And because I have conviction that this is the word of God, I trust what it says about how long it took him to do it. How long did it take him to do it? Let me ask it this way first. How long would it take an all-powerful being to create a universe? How long does an all-powerful being need to create a universe? How long? If he's all-powerful, could he do it in a minute if he'd wanted to? Yes or no? If God is all-powerful, could he speak the entire world into existence in 60 seconds or less? Could he do it? If not, why not? What makes us who don't possess such power say, no, no, no I don't think he could do that? Listen, Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Verse 9 says, he spoke and it was done. He commanded, it stood fast. God said, let there be and there was. Just what he said happened. That is the power God has. Now, how long did it take him to do it? He chose to do it deliberately over a six-day period <coughs> ceasing his creative activity on the seventh day. Thus you have God creating the world in six ordinary days and resting on the seventh, ceasing his creative activity on the seventh. Question, why would he do it that way when he didn't need that much time to complete the project? Do you realize, I know you do, but I want to emphasize it again, that one of the things created during creation week is time itself. God was creating time for us, a calendar for us to live by, and evolution has no explanation as to where we get our seven-day week. They can tell you a lot of things about the, the year and the sun and things of that. Where do we get the seven-day week? Where's that come from? That comes from God. God chose to give us that, and I believe it. I wasn't there, but I believe Exodus 20 and verse 11. For in six days... The Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is. 
He made it in six days, not because he needed that much time, but because we needed a time frame in which to live our lives. So I know there's a God in heaven. I know this world didn't have uh, you know, accidental origin. It came into existence on purpose by a massively powerful being who created it. And that leads me now to the component of interacting with God as a human being, trusting him and let me tell you, everything that we've just covered is critical to accepting everything else this book says. If you don't believe that, notice where Satan is leveling his attacks and always has leveled his attacks against this word, Genesis 1 through 11. That's where Satan is trying to knock the legs out from under our conviction because if he can get us to doubt the creation narrative, if he can get us to doubt the flood narrative, then he can get us to believe all kinds of things that aren't true. But friends, if you believe Genesis 1 through 11 happened just as recorded by the inspired man Moses, then tell me, is it going to be hard for you to believe that Jesus could walk on water if you believe Genesis 1 through 11 the way it's written? Will you have any trouble believing Jesus could walk on water? Will you have any trouble believing that Jesus could multiply loaves and fishes and feed thousands and have baskets left over? Will you have any trouble believing that? No. You will trust God's power to do those things. Even though you've never seen it done in your lifetime, you know that the resume of creation power that God put on display is proof that anything he wants to do that's consistent with his nature, he can do. All things are possible with God. With God, nothing is impossible. Luke 1 as far as his nature is concerned, as long as it's consistent with his nature. He can't lie because that would be inconsistent with his nature. But he can do things that men have never seen done. And I want to illustrate this to you as we go through Hebrews 11. Would you notice it with me please? Would you drop down to verse number 7. By faith Noah, being warned of God, notice... Of things not seen as yet. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. Noah, we want to ask you a question. Why are you building that boat? God told me to. Why did God tell you to make an ark of gopher wood? Because he said that he's going to destroy the world with a flood. A worldwide flood. Noah, have you ever seen a worldwide flood before? It's not impossible that Noah had never even seen a local flood before. We do not know exactly what the amount of rain would have been or not would, have, would not have been during that time because there does seem to be some significance in the Hebrew terms that describe the canopy being broken and the rains coming down. But be that as it may, we know this. Noah had never seen, the world had never seen a universal flood before for sure. Now someone says, well, what makes you so sure that it was a universal flood? Well, let me ask you a question. <clears throat> if uh, you're not going to flood the whole world and you want to save a family, do they need to build a boat if they could just migrate to a place where the flood won't be? The reason they had to build a boat is because it was going to be, the waters were going to be everywhere. And Genesis describes the waters covering all the mountains of the whole earth. 
And so we know that this is what the Bible says happened. We take God at his word. We trust him. And Noah didn't migrate over a period of decades or over a century period. He, he was building a boat. Noah, why are you building this? Because of floods coming. Noah, have you ever seen a flood come before? No. Have you ever known of a family to survive a worldwide flood before? No, I don't know of anyone who ever has. What makes you think you will? I trust God. God told me to make this boat, this ark of gopher wood. He told me how long, how broad, how high. He told me what to bring aboard. I've invited as many people as I can. If my family boards this ark with me, that will be a marvelous thing. At least my family will be with me. But I hope more will come. Of course, as you know, only eight souls were saved by water. But that ark that was built by Noah was prepared, notice verse 7, to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. <clears throat> and so we see that Noah believed in something that he'd never seen. He took God at his word and what he did in obedience had to be preceded by, I believe that God's really going to do that. If Noah did not really believe God was going to do that, why would he have done what he did? He trusted God. He took him at his word. Look at verse 8. Here's your second example by faith, Abraham. When he was called to go out to a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. But look at this. He went out not knowing where he was going. There's an unseen element to his journey He's not got it all plotted out and planned out like we often plan our trips. Here's what we're going to do on Tuesday. Then here's where we'll go on Wednesday if everything works out, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Noah, Jonah, excuse me, Abraham in this case, is following God in the place that God tells him to go. Jonah later would not follow God to the place God said to go. But Abraham would trust God and just follow him wherever God said to go. In fact, if you'll stay in this uh, chapter and notice verse 11 of Hebrews 11, through faith Sarah received strength to conceive seed, was delivered of a child when she was past age, because she judged him faithful who had promised, and therefore sprang there even of one of, and him as good as dead. Abraham, Sarah, do you know any couples your age that are having children right now? No. What makes you think you're going to have one? We trust God. We trust God's word and God said that he's going to give us a son and we trust him. We're going to take him at his word. And you know it was almost a quarter of a century from the time that God told him he's going to get one, age 75, until Isaac comes along. And there were some bumps along the road, of course, with Hagar and some uh, very ill decisions that were made uh, by Sarah and Abram. But I'll tell you that when it comes down to it, there is no doubt that they finally got to a point, Sarah finally got to a point, Abraham was at a point where he believed God could do what he, he'd never seen done. In fact, go to Romans chapter 4 for just a moment and notice a statement <coughs> that is made about verse 19. Romans 4 and verse 19. This Bible verse tells me 
about Abraham being not weak in faith. He considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. And that's what we see in Hebrews 11 over and over again. And keep this in mind as we get to verse 17. Abraham, you've got a boy now. His name's Isaac. The one you trusted that God would give you, God finally gave you, right? Yes. Now God wants you to kill him. I'm sorry, what? Well, what's that going to do to the seed promise? He doesn't have children yet. He doesn't have offspring yet. If I kill him, there goes your, no, no quibbling. Total trust. Total trust on Abraham's part. How so? Watch verse 17 of Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Okay, Abraham, we're trying to figure out how you could have gone with such trust to actually fulfill God's command to slay your son, still believing that God was going to keep his seed promise. How could you believe in that? Verse 19 has always fascinated me. Accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him figuratively, because, of course, Isaac would get up from the place where he had been put down. He didn't yet die because God stopped Abraham before he was about to plunge the instrument of death into him and says, Abraham, Abraham, he says, here I am. God says, don't do this. I know now that you trust me. And so, Abraham takes Isaac and, and lifts him up. But wait, what's Abraham thinking in his mind if he goes, does go through with this? If God lets me get so far as to kill him, he must be at some point going to raise him up from the dead. This is where I want to interview Abraham and ask him this question. Abraham, how many resurrections from the dead did you hear about before you concluded in your mind that God was capable of raising a man from the dead? If you start in Genesis 1 and go to Genesis 21, the chapter before Genesis 22 where we're reading all of this, tell me how many resurrections from the dead do you and I read about in the first 21 chapters of the book of Genesis? How many? Tell me. Not a single one. Okay, if Abraham, you've never seen anyone raised from the dead? No. What makes you think God's capable of doing that? Because I spell my God with a capital G, and if God made man from the dust of the earth, he can bring him back from the dust of the earth. I take God at his word. I trust God. And if God said, that's the boy through whom the seed promise will be perpetuated, then that's the boy through whom the seed promise will be perpetuated when he grows up to become a man. And I trust God. And even if I kill him, God must be planning to raise him up because God said, that's the boy. I have that much trust that God will do what he said he's going to do. Wow. Give me that kind of faith. 
I want to be able to trust God's ability to do things that I've not yet seen, that no one's ever seen. Now look at verse 20 of uh, Hebrews 11. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, notice, concerning things to come, things that were not yet seen. They hadn't happened yet. But here in the book of Genesis, Isaac is giving these blessings. And then you see Jacob, verse 21, when he's dying, blessing the sons of Joseph. And you see them giving out blessings for events that haven't yet happened. Why? They trust God and take him at his word. And then I love verse 22. Joseph, uh, you made mention of the departing of the children of Israel, the exodus if you're aware that the children of Israel are not yet in bondage, right? You're predicting an exodus before the bondage even begins? Yes. How can you know that they're going to be delivered from a bondage that hasn't even yet happened? I trust God's revelation and God has made known to me certain things and I'm telling you that I trust God. I take him at his word. Moses. You can see the treasures of Egypt with your own eyes. They're visible. They're tangible. You have access to them. You're going to trade what you can see for what you can't see. Watch verse 23. Moses, when he was born, was hid of three months of his parents. And then when he gets to his own age to make decisions, when he was come to years, verse 24... He made a conscious decision that he would not be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. No. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin or the pleasures of sin for a season. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. He had respect to the recompense of reward. And then I want you to zoom in on verse 27 please. By faith... Trust that was conjoined with obedience. He forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. He endured. Do you see the last phrase? As seeing him who is invisible. You've seen the actual Pharaoh. You've seen the treasures that Egypt has to offer. You've never seen God in his full essence. What makes you believe that you're going to be better off if you choose the unseen? He had faith. He took God at his word. And this was also on display at the Passover. In verse 28, put yourself in Israelite sandals. It's the time for the 10th plague. And you are wondering how your firstborn are going to survive. You're a firstborn. You're wondering how you're going to survive and Moses and Aaron summon everyone with these words. Here's what's going to happen. On the 10th day of this month, this month, every man needs to take a, a male lamb of the first year without blemish. And then we keep that lamb till the 14th day. And then on the 14th day, we kill the lamb in the evening we're going to strike the blood on the two side posts and on the upper doorpost of the house wherein we eat the Passover. And when God sees that blood properly applied, he'll pass over that house and the firstborn won't die in that house. How many upon hearing that plan 
would be able to look at each other and say, yeah, remember the last time we did that and it worked? When had they ever known of that to protect someone from death before? There was no historical record of uh, people surviving by doing this in the past. So what made them think it would work this time? They trusted God. They took him at his word. And I love verse 28 of Exodus 12. <coughs> the children of Israel went away and did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so did they. They did what God said do because they trusted that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. And that brings us to the Red Sea. Here we are at the Red Sea, and this is a body of water that is not going to be crossed in ankle-deep fashion. It's, it breaks my heart, by the way, that we've got some schools, even in our own brotherhood. My dad attended one of them many years ago, in which he was told by his Bible professor that uh, the Red Sea crossing wasn't like you've been told. It wasn't some massive amount of water that they were crossing, you know, in between walls of water. Like, you know, that was all done hyperbolically to emphasize the, the amazing victory. But it was really the Reed Sea. It's just a marshy swamp with ankle-deep water in it. Being taught at a Christian college by a Bible professor claiming to be a member of the Lord's church. I want to know how Pharaoh's chariots and Pharaoh and his armies drowned in ankle-deep water. My Bible says in Exodus 15, they sank like a stone in the depths of the water. And so, look, I spell my God with a capital G. Do you think God is capable of taking a body of water and parting it? Yes or no? Well, what did he do when he created the world? He brought waters together and separated land and water. And so God knows how to do that. He can part water. He can bring water together. He parts the water. The ground is dried. They cross on dry ground. Now, they had to believe those walls of water would stay where they were. How many past events in their lifetime could they summon as proof? Oh, yeah, this will work because remember the last time we did what we're about to do. Remember that? No, I don't remember that. We've never done this before. So if you've never gone down into a place where water used to be on the, on the surface of the, uh, the bottom of the, of, the, of the floor, what makes you think it's going to hold you, that it's going to be dry enough that you won't sink in it? What makes you think those walls of water that are standing inside of you are going to stay standing? and not collapse and, and drown you. What makes you think? I trust God. This is what God said do. I take God at his word. And even though I've never known of men to go through something like this and survive it, if God said do it, I trust God. I take him at his word and I'm not going to back down from that. So verse 29 thus says, by faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land the Egyptians tried to do the same thing and they were drowned because God had not made them the promise that he'd made to his own people there. Look at verse 30. 
We're now 40 years later, roughly to the time of the conquest of Jericho, and they've waited patiently for the battle plan. What's the plan? How are we going to conquer the land we've journeyed all these years toward? What's the plan? All right, here. The plan has been revealed. Here's what's going to happen. We're going to walk around the city once a day for six days. We're not going to say a word. Just going to walk around the city once a day for six days. And then on the seventh day, we're going to go around it seven times. And we're going to blow the trumpets and shout. And when we do that, the walls will fall flat. And we'll go in and we'll take this place. And what is plan B? How many of those Israelites hearing this battle plan would say, remember the last time that worked? There is no evidence in history that God had ever asked for this to be done like this that way before. So what made them think this actually is going to make, what rational thought causes you to think if we walk around the city six times and then walk around it seven times on the same day, and we blow trumpets and shout, the walls will come falling flat. What connection is there that would cause you to think that? It's the connection of I trust God, I take him at his word. That's what he said to do. And he said what he's going to do if we do what he's asked us to do. I'm going to do what he's asked us to do because I believe he's going to do what he said he's going to do. And friends... That's how we also know in verse 31 that by faith the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she'd received the, the spies with peace. Rahab, what makes you believe that? Well, she says, I've heard of what God's already been doing with you people. And the record of what God's done in the past gives me confidence of what he's able to do in the present. I trust God. And that's one of the most marvelous things about Rahab is her coming to conviction. But then as you close out Hebrews 11, you just get a rat-a-tat-tat example after example uh, of believing in things that had never been seen before. Gideon is mentioned in verse 32. Gideon, uh, do you remember the last time you took only 300 soldiers and fought so many thousands and came out on top? Do you remember that? No. Well, do you remember the someone before you did that? No, I don't, I've never heard of it done this way. You trust God? Yeah. That's why I'm doing it now. I'm going to take 300 and we're going to do what God said do because we trust him. And then you get to David in verse 32. David, have you ever fought a nine foot tall plus giant before? Some guesstimate he might have been as tall as nine feet, nine inches tall. Be that as it may, he's a giant. He's tall and uh, he's a militarily trained Philistine, and no one wants to fight him. But David says, I'll fight him. David, have you ever fought a giant before and won? No, but i tell you what I have done. I, I fought a lion and a bear, and the Lord delivered me out of the hand of both of them. What God has done in the past is my conviction for the present moment, and I'm going to trust the same God that has delivered men in the past, and I trust him now. I trust him. And he went out and conquered the giant. 
even though he'd never done anything like that before and didn't know of anyone else who had because he took God at his word. And then look at verse 33. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Daniel, come here, please. Have you ever, you do know that if you keep praying, what's going to happen? Yeah, I know. What makes you think, I don't know if I will or won't survive, but I tell you this. I trust God to be able to deliver me. And if uh, I get thrown into a den of lions, then God has the power to protect me if he wants to. I trust him. And then if you'll notice in this next phrase, verse 34, quenched the violence of fire. Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, also known as Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Come here, please. You, don't, you do know that if you don't bend, if you don't bow to the image, you're going to burn, right? And we're not going to bend. We're not backing down. Our God is able. Wait. Based on what do you conclude that God is able to deliver men from a fiery furnace? How many fiery furnaces do you have in Scripture recorded prior to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah's event? They could draw from to know that God could do that with people. There weren't any. But they were basing their conviction on what God had done, what they knew he'd already done. And they said, if he can do that, he can do this. We trust him. We trust him. And that brings us to verse 34. It mentions those who turn to flight the armies of the aliens. Uh, Judah, you do know the Assyrians are camped outside your city, right? Yeah, yeah, we're well aware of it. They've been trash-talking out there about how they're 46-0. They've knocked off every city since they conquered Samaria 20 years ago. They've been systematically marching toward Judah, and now here they are outside, and they're telling us, don't let Hezekiah deceive you into thinking your God will let you out of this uh, none of these other nations' gods got them out of it. So what makes you think your God will get you out of it? We trust God. He said the scepter wouldn't depart from Judah, Genesis 49.10, and that uh, virgins going to conceive and bring forth a son, and that son has not yet come. That will be God with us. We trust God to fulfill his scheme of redemption Based on what he's already done, we think he can do this too. We trust him. And 185,000 Assyrian soldiers didn't get up one morning, not because they had arrows sticking out of them, but because God had taken care of his people and defended the Davidic promise to bring about the Messiah through Judah. And then as you close out to verse 35, you see women receiving their dead to life again, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. So not everyone survived. Some were persecuted even to death, but they trusted God the whole time knowing that there is someone who can do something to your body, but after that they have no more they can do to you. We need to fear him who can kill both body and soul in hell, Matthew 10, 28 and following. These people, some of them were stoned, verse 37. Sawn in two and sawn in half, sawn asunder, tempted, slain with a sword, wandering about sheepskins, goatskins, destitute, afflicted, tormented. The world wasn't worthy of them. They were wandering in deserts, mountains, dens, caves of the earth. 
And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, through trust, conjoined with their obedience, received not the promise, but God having provided some better thing for us that they without us should not be made perfect. And that gets us into chapter 12 where we see the great cloud of witnesses and we're running the race and it's not a 100 yard dash, it's a marathon. And what keeps us going when we want to give up and quit? I see him. Looking unto Jesus, no, I don't see an actual vision of him, but I absolutely trust this, this fact, this biblical fact. Someday I will see him face to face. Right now I see him with eyes of faith. I know he's going to be there waiting for me. I know that to be absent from this body will to be, be present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 7. I know also that to leave this body and to be with Christ will be far better, Philippians 1, 21. And so here's what I know. I know that Jesus is going to be there at the finish line waiting to, to welcome me. I know this. Now, in the next hours, I noted we're going to talk more about the obedience component to this, but I can't give the invitation without giving emphasis to that here right now. Hebrews 5, 8 says, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that, what? Obey him. So what would make me obey him? I trust that he's going to do what he said he's going to do. Now, you have the baptistry right here. Someone might ask, what connection is there between someone being dunked in water and then coming up out of the water and somehow, voila, their sins are all gone? What, what? Where do you get that logical, well, here, I, I, I take God at his word. I trust God. And God said, he that believeth and is baptized, what? Shall be saved, Mark 16, 16. I know it's the blood of Christ that washes my sins away, but when does that happen? Well, Saul, can you tell us when the blood of Christ washed your sins away? I was told, arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And did you do it? Yeah. What did you expect God was going to do when you did what you did, Saul? I expected God was going to wash away my sins because that's what he promised. Now, did you understand the connection between why you needed to be immersed and how he was going to wash your sins away? I, I just know that's what he said to do, and I trust him. I know his son died, his son was buried, his son came up and arose from the dead, and I'll be buried in a watery grave, I'll come up and rise to walk in newness of life. I trust God, because baptism does something, what does it do? It also now saves us, 1 Peter 3.21, and so I just take God at his word, and I believe that he's going to do what he said he's going to do when I do what he's asked me to do, hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, and being baptized for the remission of sins, that's what God has asked me to do, and then he will do what only he can do. He's the only one that can wash my sins away by the, the power of his son's blood, but he said he would, and I take him at his word, 
and I trust him and I'm ready to obey him. Some of you already have. Maybe someone in this room hasn't and you're ready to put him on with trusting faith and obedience which would take you and would dip you as someone who's confessed your faith in Christ. You'll come up from a watery grave of baptism. You'll have been covered up for just an instant and then you'll come up brand new clean in the blood of Christ, a member of the church that belongs to Christ. Wouldn't that be marvelous to see today? Someone's already done, the majority of folks perhaps have already done that in this room right now. So if you're wandering away from God, I can promise you he longs to save you and will save you if you'll come back and pray, repent and pray as Acts 8 shows the Simon the sorcerer being instructed after he was scripturally baptized, what he needed to do to make things right was repent and pray. And that's what we would like to have you do today. If you need salvation, trust God's plan, follow it, take him at his word. And that's, by the way, one last thing I'd like to say. If someone asks you to say the sinner's prayer, they're not asking you to take God at his word because they can't show you that in God's word. But if they ask you to hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized for the remission of sins, that is taking God at His word because every single step I just mentioned is documented in the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament. That is God's word. That's what we're calling you to obey today or to come back to your God today without delay. We love you. Won't you let Him save you if you're not yet saved? As together we stand and sing, won't you trust Him and obey?